Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I speak with Dr. Tim Reed, one of the directors of the Institute of Psychedelic Therapy in the UK and co-editor of the recently published Psychedelics and Psychotherapy. Dr. Reed discusses the history of psychedelic therapy, where it is heading, training psychedelic therapists, and the public's changing perceptions of psychedelic therapy. He also discusses how psychedelic therapy is helping to shift views on the nature of consciousness, and he explores the ongoing COVID pandemic as an analogy of a challenging psychedelic experience. Tim Reed is a medical doctor, psychiatrist, and psychotherapist based in London. He led psychiatric services at the Royal London Hospital for 20 years and held academic positions at London University. He is trained in psychoanalytic therapy and in transpersonal therapy with Stanislav Grof. He is a certified facilitator of holotropic breathwork and has an active clinical and supervisory role in the therapeutic use of psychedelics. His books include Walking Shadows, Archetypes and Psyche in Crisis and Growth, Breaking Open, Finding a Way Through Spiritual Emergency, co-edited with Jules Evans, and the recently published Psychedelics and Psychotherapy, co-edited with Maria Papaspiro. Along with Maria Papaspiro, he is director of the Institute of Psychedelic Therapy. Dr. Reed, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Well, thank you, Nick, and thanks very much for inviting me. Of course. Of course. I, I know that you are very busy. So first, I wanted to thank you for being so gracious and sharing some of your time with me today. It is truly appreciated. It's a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Um, I thought that we would begin with a little bit of background. Uh, I'm sure most of my audience is at least somewhat familiar with psychedelics, uh, but I try not to make assumptions. Uh, as an instructor, um, I know that people come to things with various uh, background information. Uh, so I think it is fair to say, I hope, that we are in something of a psychedelic renaissance. I know that there were many studies in the 1950s and early 1960s about the therapeutic effectiveness of psychedelics, but that all came to an end with prohibition. Uh, and I was wondering if you could say a bit about where we are now, uh, maybe how we got here um, with psychedelics once more being seriously studied for their therapeutic value. Well, it's a very interesting story, and I I guess we need to start at the beginning with the discovery of LSD by by Albert Hoffman in in the West, and the way and they realised that they had this incredibly powerful substance that did very strange things to the mind, but no one really knew what to do with it. So uh, Albert Hoffman and the drug company that he worked for at the time, Sandoz, um, sent packages of LSD out to academic departments, and, uh, academic departments of psychiatry and psychology around the world, and research started. And it gradually emerged that rather than produce a toxic psychosis, which is what people first thought, thought it did, some, something a bit like schizophrenia, it, it, it was more like it, it opened the window onto some of the deeper layers of the mind. Um, so rather than introducing something new into the mind, it showed us what was in the mind already. 
uh, but at a very deep level. And it was often likened to the, the, the electron microscope. Um, and um, there was a huge amount of interest in the 50s and the early 60s. Um, many psychiatrists devoted their, their, their professional life to uh, see what benefits um, their, their patients could get. Um, one of whom was Stanislav Grof, who, 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 who probably did more work than anyone else and is a bit like the Freud of psychedelic work. And I, I guess we'll talk about him and some of his work later. And what Groff basically found was that um, just one session didn't really do anything. But if you had a series of, of sessions of LSD, which were very supported, accompanied by psychotherapy, so some psychotherapy after the sessions, then there was a certain trajectory of treatment that took people through their traumas. And there was a, a healing process that generally seemed to result that was really quite complicated. And it's uncovered parts of the psyche that uh, were not described by, by traditional uh, psychotherapy. So Groff, for example, was trained to be a psychoanalyst at the time. I mean, he went to medical school uh, because he was fascinated by Freud and wanted to be a psychoanalyst, but he found that uh, the layers of mind that were opened up by LSD, you know, could not be found in any of Freud's teachings. So completely new, new models of mind had, had, had to be derived. And that led to um, the school of, of transpersonal psychology, which is a little bit like Jungian psychology. So it kind of accepts traditional psychology, uh, you know, Freudian psychology, object relations psychology, but like Jung thought, thought that, that, that there was a bigger picture. So, so, so one of the effects of the LSD work was that it, um, it, it, it changed the map of the mind. Um, another effect was that some clinical groups found some, some, some benefit from it, and it seemed to be associated with people having a numinous experience. So often people who would have a sense of sacred, sense of the divine, sense of a dissolution of our ego, um, that, that, was, that, that seemed to be associated with good clinical outcomes in some people, especially addiction maybe in end of life anxiety. So the founder of the 12 step program, for example, uh, famously had an experience like that. A lot of work done with end of life anxiety, with depression, etc. And then of course came the political upheavals of the 1960s, a lot of irresponsible use of LSD that caused a lot of concern um, and the war on drugs. And it, and um, the, the research programs were shut down. And I suppose with hindsight, what is surprising about the way in which it was shut down was the way in which the, the, the positive aspects of the work were completely lost. So for example, when I was training in psychiatry in the 80s and 90s, I did not know of this work. It was like it had been airbrushed out of history. So, you know, myself and my friends had the normal sort of experiences at university with psychedelics and you know I, I, I found it interesting but I was not aware of the non-recreational ways of using it and of course when you're using LSD in a clinical way um, you have a guide it's an internal experience you have your eyes shut um, you close yourself off from the outside environment there's, there's a music set that supports and guides the experience. So we, we did not know of any of this work. And it's quite astonishing, really, how um, effective that kind of blanket of secrecy was. 
so you know from about 1970 to the early 2000s there was no work the flame was kept alive in a few places most notably in the states rick doblin mm-hmm. um, has probably done more than anyone else to bring about the current psychophilic renaissance um, he he trained at Stan Grock in holotropic breathwork. I think his PhD was really about how to work with the, um, the, um, the, the US regulatory authorities with a view to developing research programs. And with extraordinary kind of tenacity, um, he, 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 he brought about a process where the um, the work with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder began in, in, the early two, in the early 2000s. And I suppose it's easy to forget now the, you know, the, the walls of resistance that he and his colleagues must have had to overcome. So really, it's quite a remarkable story. But once they started doing that work, the clinical outcomes were, were so impressive that it seemed that there was no coming back. So, you know... Um, obviously, because of the conflicts, uh, the US you know, had, I think, I forget the figures, but I think it was in the region of three quarters of a million veterans drawing disability benefits with PTSD. So obviously a huge kind of health concern, financial imperative to do something about this. And, you know, the, the, the early studies with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy um, showed pretty stunning results for the majority of people with severe post-traumatic stress disorder that they have had for, for many years. Um, and the early, you know, that early work was done, what, 15, 16 years ago. Um, and, you know, we're still waiting for the final phase three studies that will enable it to be done as true. In, in the UK, incidentally, we've been trying to get this research off, uh, off the ground for some years. And we hope, we, we hope, we hope it's going to start next year. Um, you know, which again, just, just shows the difficulties in overcoming the regulatory barriers. Um, to continue the story in 2005, I think it was a team at Johns Hopkins, um, Roland Griffiths, William Richards did a study on psilocybin, which I, I think was the first kind of prominent study on psilocybin. Um, and they used, uh, they didn't use a clinical group, they used, uh, they used normal healthy volunteers who had a meditation practice and who had not taken psychedelics before. And um, they, they showed that for the vast majority of these people, psilocybin um, in, induced a positive spiritual experience um, that people subsequently described as one of the most important experiences of their lives. And, and that kind of effectively um, rehabilitated um, uh, psilocybin and probably made it respectable to work with. And then over the last decade, there's been studies looking at psilocybin depression, psilocybin with uh, end of life treatment, and um, a, a steady accumulation of fairly positive results. Nothing particularly stunning. There's nothing to indicate that this is um, psilocybin assisted psychotherapy has advantages over conventional treatment but it seems that it is as effective, but works in a completely different way. And of course, it's the way in which it works in a, in a different way, which, which is so interesting, certainly so interesting to me. A lot of things come to mind. <laughs> uh, one thing, uh, and this may be just more of an observation on my part, uh, but I know that the 
work of Rick Doblin and the uh, association he heads up is uh, MAPS, the it's Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, I believe. Uh, I, I think that that was really important in the United States because the way the laws are set up here, it says that these substances have absolutely no therapeutic value. So it was really important for him to demonstrate that they do. And my understanding is I don't want to be U.S. centric here, but I think that with this war on drugs, uh, the U.S. has sort of bullied a lot of other countries to adopt the position. So I hope that as the U.S. opens up to the use of these substances in the therapeutic setting that other countries will follow. Uh, do you think that that might be a necessary condition uh, for, uh, and I know other countries like Portugal has decriminalized uh, most uh, drugs, if not all drugs. Uh, where do you see this going from a worldwide perspective, uh, I guess is the question I wanted to ask. Um, so I think there are a few layers to that. I mean, the, the first layer is how, how effective conditioning is. Um, and we were conditioned to think that these drugs were dangerous and they had no medical use and that they were really bad for you. Mm. And I think that conditioning is now dissolving. And, you know, with the current psychedelic renaissance, the, the media is not hostile. The, the media mm. is, is, is pretty positive. The media can see that, that there are some benefits. Um, obviously, the politicians are very cautious. And, you know, they're, they're obviously worried about the voters who, you know, who are frightened and have, have, got, have, got, have got quite, quite conservative views. In terms of where it's going to go, at the moment it's it's, it's research led, so you know that that may that may change as 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 leg, legislative frameworks become become more liberal, and you know it may be that the US will will continue to to lead to lead the way in that. But how it's going at the moment, certainly in the UK, is that the 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 only clinical work is, is happening in. In, in research departments, and of course the paradox is, is that those 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 departments are neuroscience led. They're very they they're, they're very much into the, the, the medical paradigm, mm. and the, um, the the psychological understanding of of, of of psychedelics is is very often at odds with the, the neuroscience understanding. Right. Of, of how uh, of, of how psychedelics work. So there's there's kind of a dance going on, and of course. The, the clinical research protocols have to be very rigid. It's what clinical research is like. Mm -hmm. um, so treatments are, are very strictly defined. They're over short periods of time. Clinical groups are very carefully selected. You know, you get one or two or three treatments, which is probably very different to how, you know, psychedelic psychotherapy will work in, in the future where the legal frameworks are different. I mean, you know, I, I know from my training with with Groff that um, working in expanded states will, will will take some years you know the cohort of people that I trained with you know for us it all took three to five years to, to go through that process so you know, and there's a certain process that you go through of you know going through the, 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 the layers of the psyche and accessing the wounds and the healing them and stuff so you know so from that perspective it's kind of ridiculous to think that you're going to you know, that you're going to heal people within the space of a few months and a couple of sessions. You can do some really good work in that short time. You can set scene, you know, you can clear some trauma. You, you know, people will have certain experiences that they will never forget. 
they will feel very held by the therapists to work with them and they will probably develop a new relationship where they're in a world that will stand them in a very good stead for the future, but you can cure them there. So but you can see that in the future, people using psychedelics in a gradual, careful way, probably not very often in the context of psychotherapy, would be very different from, from, from the clinical research programs. Okay. Yeah, the, there are a few things there I think we'll come back to, but immediately, uh, and I wanted to, uh, this is a question I was intending to ask you, the first chapter of psychedelics and psychotherapy uh, that was written by you and uh, Maria uh, is titled The Opening Circle. And the final chapter, uh, which you also both wrote, is titled The Closing Circle. Mm. And this evokes to me this idea that there is a kind of ceremonial aspect to the work. And as you mentioned, people are having these sorts of numinous experiences. And I think in terms of psyche, not just as mind, but take it back to the Greek with soul, um, that it seems like this is deep sort of soul work. And the therapies that seem to have been called upon in the book more often than any others were, you know, the work of Groff, Carl Jung, transpersonal psychology. And so psychedelic therapy isn't like other therapies. Um, Do you see this as a sort of, I hesitate in in a way to use this term, but do you see this as a paradigm shift uh, in terms of how therapy is practiced? Um, I I think it will be paradigm changing, but Mm. sometimes paradigms change very suddenly. Uh, in an individual, but in organizations, paradigms tend to change slowly and, and subtly. Um, and I, I think that will I think that will be the case. Um, so so one paradigm change might happen in psychiatry. Um, so there's a certain tendency in psychiatry to think of psychiatric disorders as a result of constitutional genetic chemical processes. That's mm-hmm. just kind of bad luck. From a psychedelic, from a psychological perspective, we would tend to think of uh, mental illnesses being related to expressions of, 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 of traumas. Uh, and rather than telling somebody that they have an illness and they need to take medication, their illness is meaningless, um, we would have a perspective that their symptoms have got meaning, uh, that their symptoms are something that can help to be understood, that this is part of a healing process that can be worked with, um, and, and, and that it's going to be good for them, that there's a way of working with this in which, in which, which can be benefited from. One of the gifts, I think, of, of work with psychedelics is that it can shine a light on those parts of the psyche that, if, if they're not processed, and they become expressed in a problematic way, can result in those conditions that we call mental illness. So I think there's the possibility of moving from a more kind of medical fundamentalist paradigm uh, to a more meaning-filled paradigm, which is to do with healing. And rather than being, you know, the white-coated doctor who examines somebody and says, I observe that there is something the matter with you, and we will try to fix it in this way, the psychedelic paradigm is that we... We, we, we get into a space together, we get into a tender, open healing space together, 
and we see what comes up and we support the emergence of it. And we don't know what's going to come up and we don't know what the answer is, but we're going to be with you in that place and, and we're going to hang on in there with you and we will support whatever comes up and we, we think it's going to be good. So, so that, that's one paradigm change. I, I suppose there's another paradigm change, which is often harder to talk about, especially in kind of scientific or medical circles, which is really, you know, hearts back to the difference between, you know, Freud and Jung and Plato and um, non-Platonists, which is the argument is, is consciousness confined to chemical processed synapses? To brain cells to the brain, or is there is 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 that just one aspect of consciousness? And is consciousness more complicated than that? Is there is is there a collective unconscious, which is what Jung described? Is consciousness part of the fabric of the universe? You know, and that's one of those ways of dividing the world up into two people, in, you know, into two classes of people. And what psychedelics tend to do, and they don't invariably do this, but they tend to do, is they tend to persuade people who thought that uh, consciousness was uh, confined to synaptic process. And they tend to give people the idea that actually it's a bit more complicated than that. And, uh, and people who have a you know, high grade psychedelic experience will often be, you know, be, be very persuaded that, uh, that, that consciousness is part of the fabric of the universe. You know, and, and that, that's a huge paradigm shift. And, you know, and some people would say that, you know, use of psychedelics will make more people believe in that other people would say well people are people and maybe the world is always going to be you know in a certain way and there's only going to be a small amount of people that will believe in, in that platonic vision and, and of course Jung was very persuaded by, by, by synchronicities and anyone who's experienced a major synchronicity um, will often develop a conviction that there's a correspondence between something that's happened in the outer world and something that's happened in the inner world so uh, there's, there's, there's a connection meaning between uh, between us and the outside world and certainly you know people that work in a psychedelic space whether guiding people or having various psychedelic journeys will be very familiar with the way in which you know there, there tend to be more more more, more synchronicities it seems as though the, the veils get thinner yeah and in your experience do uh, I suppose that people, who undergo psychedelic therapy, do they then start experiencing more of these synchronicities? Uh, I, I think they sometimes do, um, you know, I, I, um, it, especially in the aftermath, um, uh, when the psychic structures, your defensive structures are still are still quite open. Mm. And yeah, that may last for a few days or a week or two. Sometimes it lasts a little longer than that. And then your defensive structures tend to revert to normal so you know it's kind of unusual to get lasting change after right. one or two or three psychedelic right. journeys it's more you know to 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 really change the deep psychic structures it's a matter of traction of engaging mm -hmm. with process over a period of time and it works so much better if you're doing this in a therapeutic context um, right yeah. right and uh Along the therapeutic context, um, integration uh, after the experience is an incredibly important uh, aspect of psychedelic therapy, correct? And how do therapists help with the integration process? Uh, what are some of the tools and techniques that uh, are used? Well, 
I think before you talk about integration, you, you need to start with preparation. Okay. Uh, because it's that journey through the preparation, the session itself, and then the integration of what happens after, after the integration. So in the preparation, maybe the most important thing, apart from you know, the psychoeducation, explaining what the experience is, is the development of the therapeutic relationship. Mm. Um, so the, the guide, the therapist, whatever you want to call them, the participant, need to get to know each other. It needs to be a trusting relationship. It's, you know, it's really helpful to know a lot about the, your client's history, major aspects of their life, their developmental history, the big things that have happened in their life, uh, the, 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 the things that have really meant something to them. Um, so you have a, you know, you, you, you really have a sense of what their life has been like, what their developmental struggles have been, what their existential struggles are, are now. And in the, in the journey itself, the psychedelic journey itself, um, w- one of the most important things is for the participants to be really open, to have a sense of being able to, to surrender. Sometimes that's really difficult because the process can be very intense, it can feel overwhelming. Sometimes people get you know, um, what we call annihilatory anxiety. It feels as though you know, their ego structures are under attack and often people think they're gonna die. So, um, so that's why the therapeutic relationship is so important. So if you, you know, if you don't trust that you're in a safe place, you can't, you can't really be open. And so much of the benefit of experience is just being as open as you can be. So I think you can see how different it would be if you were doing a solo journey, and you know you had to keep a part of yourself on 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 guard, so to speak. And then sometimes, especially when people have challenging experiences. And just to say challenging experiences are often so useful because they, they really get to what needs to be worked with. But, um, but these kind of deep wounds are what you've been defending yourself for, for all your life. So, you know, your every instinct is, is to move away from them. But of course, in the psychedelic journey, we encourage people to actually move towards it with a spirit of curiosity to see what's there. But often people need support with that. So, you know, maybe some physical contact, some hand-holding, you know, some shoulder-holding, you know, and these are, these are the things that you rehearse first in, in the preparation. And it's so important to get that right. So important to get that right. And then if something challenging does come up, um, which, which is a, a good sign, it, it's often a good sign. You, know, you don't have to have a challenging experience to, to benefit from it, but if you do have a challenging experience, it's really important that it's properly supported and resolved as best as best it can. It's not always possible to do that, but you want to do that as, as best you can. And then the, the integration is really the, the, the making sense of it, um, the, the retaining of material from the unconscious so that it, uh, so it is retained in consciousness. Otherwise, it just slips away like a big dream. You know, it maybe makes an impact when you wake up in the morning and then, and then you forget it. Um, and, and it has no lasting impact. There are different layers to the integration. So when people emerge from the experience, you know, they, they would talk it through um, to some extent. They may not have many words. You know, it may be that not many words need to be said. And then the next day, you'd have a different conversation and um, you'd encourage people to give a, a narrative of where they've been. Some, sometimes you might encourage people to draw something if, if the words don't come, certainly in holotropic breath work, you know, we, encourage, we encourage people to, to, to draw because so much of what's experienced is often difficult to express, express verbally. Mm-hmm. Encourage people to pay attention to their dreams, 
Um, sometimes we might play a bit of a music set that they journeyed to the previous day to help them to, uh, to, to, to remember some of their experience. Sometimes people feel that something is lodged in you know, their body because so often you know, early trauma is kind of lodged in the body in a way that's quite mysterious. And some, you know, we have ways of working with that. And then, you know, it depends on the model you use, you use but, but, but often it's really helpful to have a few integration sessions. Um, and, you know, you remember more, you go deeper, you relate your experience to, you know, to, to your biographical life, to what your, uh, what your existential concerns are at the moment, to your, your perspective of future. And it kind of seems that the more, that the more integrative work you do, the... Uh, more likely you are to to harness the energy of the work okay. and, and then of course you know you you're, you're always integrating anyway so you, you encourage the spirit of curiosity uh, the reading the way you live your life the way you engage with nature the way you engage with you know friends and family your, your partner is all an integrative experience and you want to you know encourage the view that life is integration never you know, every minute mm-hmm. you know you're you're engaging you're learning something um you're you know you're you're living more fully yeah you're, you're drinking more deeply the uh, wonderful cup of life with, with all its myriad of tones and flavors yeah it's a very different paradigm uh than the model that we have uh, in i would assume in most of the western industrialized world of you know well here just take this pill and Maybe you might get better, maybe you won't, but this is the best that we can offer you right now. Uh, this actually speaks to the whole person and the entirety of their lives. So, so that, that's the paradigm change. So, yeah. so, so, so conventional treatment is basically suppressing the symptoms mm-hmm. to make the symptoms go away so you don't have to think about them. You know, I feel depressed. I go to the doctor. The doctor says, you know, it's not my fault. I've just got this thing called a depressive illness and here's some tablets. And hopefully that will help you. you and, and that colludes with the notion that you don't have to think, you don't have to encounter anything difficult or troubling. You know, there's no impetus to grow. The difficulty of the psychedelic approach, and, you know, I, I, I think this is something that is maybe insufficiently addressed, is you're asking people to go to difficult places. Mm-hmm. You know, you're asking people to, to do the hard yards. You're asking people to turn towards what they would habitually turn away from. And, you know, you're asking people to believe that in doing that, it's going to be good for you. Now, you know, most people are probably not going to buy that. Certainly in my experience as a psychiatrist, you know, it was relatively unusual to find people that really want to work on their, on their issues. Most people will, will take the tablet. Mm. Yeah. It brings to mind one of the issues, I think, that might be addressing um, therapists who want to work with uh, psychedelics uh, with their patients is the general population's understanding. Um, it seems like that's something that has to be addressed. Uh, I think in particular, um, there are some ideas, there's a fear of, you know, bad trips. So I appreciate how you refer to these, not as bad trips, but challenging experiences. But even outside of that, I'm thinking, 
in particular, I have a, uh, one of my very best friends, her daughter suffers from uh, anxiety and depression. Um, and I do too. Uh, I always call it shaman's blood. And in conversation with her, I suggested, I said, well, you know, you might want to consider, you know, maybe suggesting to her a kind of psychedelic therapy. And the daughter's like 20 years old. And I know that my friend has experience, you know, from her youth with psychedelics, but there was still this reticence of, I don't know. And what prompted me to suggest this was the fact that her medications weren't working and they were trying to up the doses. And I'm like, I think something else needs to be there. And that's one of the values, I think, uh, in uh, the book, Psychedelics and Psychotherapy, is this isn't necessarily written for therapists. It seems to be written for more of a general audience. Do you see that as a uh, central, uh, um, what's the word I want, a uh, major component, I suppose, of contributing to or encouraging this shift in therapies? Uh, addressing the general public's concerns. Yeah, I think it's a slow process, and I, I think I think it's going quite well. I, you know, I think I think we, you know, it, not just about psychedelics, but in so many other ways, we're confronting some of our conditioning, and we're throwing out some of the baggage that we don't need. I think the science-led approach is really helpful. I think people generally respect science. In terms of your friend's daughter, and I'm, I'm sorry she's having these problems. Mm-hmm. But the evidence isn't there yet that we can make mm. a solid recommendation. Right. Um, right. But, you know, it is something to be considered because the standard pharmaceutical medication that she and so, so many millions of other people are taking is, you know, is not without risk. And we know that the pharmaceutical companies underreport negative effects. We, you know, we, we, we know there are many more problems than we're, we're led to believe. In terms of you know, what the future might hold for people with that depression. Well, I think MDMA is very promising because it seems to be such an effective treatment for uh, for, 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 for generalised. You know, we, we don't know yet, but extrapolating from the work with PTSD, we would think that other people with lesser forms of trauma will probably benefit from it. We know that it increases self-compassion, makes people feel more connected. And, you know, there's a much lower incidence of challenging experiences. So, you know, we can sort of see that that might have a lot of potential as an entry level, uh, as an entry level kind of psychedelic. But I'm, you know, I'm, you know I think we need to be really sober, um, you know, about, uh, about our claims. So we, obviously, we need to avoid, you know, ext- extravagant evangelistic claims. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know, the paradigm shift that we're asking people to uh, to consider that, you know, but looking deeply inside themselves, that seeing deeply into their mind and really seeing what's there, and that that's okay. And that there, you know, there are ways of supporting you through these things that maybe have have left really quite deep scars, you know, that have really affected the way that you live your lives, have really affected your perspective, have you know, profoundly shaped your relationship with the world around you in a way that doesn't work so well. And it doesn't have to be like that. I I think that's really exciting, really exciting, you know, and, you know, this is, you know, this is a really good time in our history. 
as a human rights to, to start thinking a little bit more deeply about things because you know the the, the, the planetary crisis is uh, mm. is sure enough a wake up call that we can't carry on as 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 we have been. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was going to ask you about that because there was a, um, I think it was in the introduction, uh, the first maybe, or the foreword uh, that you and Maria wrote, where you do write about COVID um, because the book really came together during the pandemic and you likened it to a challenging psychedelic experience. Um, and that's something that I thought about quite a bit. You know, you wrote that the challenge is how not to return to how we were before. And that seems so applicable to not just the pandemic, but, you know, individuals who've undergone psychedelic therapy. Um, it seems like it's an ongoing process. Like you said, you know, it's not, you don't go to just one session and find miraculous results. It's an ongoing process. It's going to take work. I'm curious how we can meet this challenge. How do you think we can meet this challenge? How do you think we can continue moving forward in, and learn our societal lessons, you know, from this greater context and not move backwards? I, I think that's a great question. How, how, how do we grow? How do we grow? And, um, you know, we think of set, setting and integration. You know, we think of a mindset of curiosity, of wanting to learn, of wanting to find me, meaning. Um, we think of, you know, the setting, how to provide a kind of safe container so we can do this work. And that's like, I suppose that's something that our politicians are trying to organise for us. Um, and then we think about integration. Um, and maybe we're not doing the integration that well at the moment. You know, I think we need our, you know, our commentators, our, our thinkers, our journalists. I think we need our politicians you know, to, 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 to really think, you know, what, what's going on here? What, what, what are we facing? What are we moving through here? What, what does this mean? Um, from where I'm looking, there seems to be an absence of statesmen around. It seems that, you know, there aren't, you know the, the, the grown-ups have kind of left the room. Um, mm. You would imagine where, where there's a, a grown-up vacuum, you would imagine mm -hmm. that some grown-ups would, would eventually enter, but... You know, but that may be a call to the rest of us to find that grown-up capacity in, in, in ourselves. I mean, if you think about the coronavirus pandemic, you know, we've had that sense of constriction. We've had an encounter with death to a greater or lesser extent. Um, it's, it has been a challenging experience, again, to a later or greater extent. We've had to be in the world in a different way. I guess we're struggling to find meaning uh, with it. It has had the effect of making the world work as one in a way that maybe it hasn't had done before. You know, it has, we haven't had to do before. You know, obviously one would wish that we were working more as one, but I can't think of another time in history when, you know, we've all been roughly moving in the same direction. Obviously there are some national leaders who've, who've taken a different path, but... That seems to be the challenge for us as a global community at the moment, you know, to really come together and manage our, you know, our economic differences, our perspectival differences in the goal of making the planet survivable for our children and grandchildren. And it may be that one of the functions of, of a pandemic is to nudge us along that direction. You know, there's been something very archetypal about the pandemic. You know, the, the physical mass of a virus, I think, has been less than a kilo. 
And yet it's had the world in its thrall. So it's had that archetypal kind of element. It's more like a goddess. Um, mm. You know, we say goddess, we, we give it mm. a feminine gender because right. it emanates from, 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 from Mother Earth, mm -hmm. Mother Earth. And, you know, you could, you, you could almost uh, find the perspective that maybe this is a homeostatic mechanism that, 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 that Mother Earth has tried to help us here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I wouldn't want to stretch that too far because one has to be so respectful of you know, the, the, the enormity of the suffering, right. you know, the people that have died, the people that have lost loved ones. But in terms of finding meaning in what we're going through, you know, I think these are the thoughts that we need to be allowed to have. Uh, what is this putting us towards? How can this be helping us? How can this be bringing us together? What are the opportunities that this provides us? And of course, you know, there, there are times, you know, there are these times in our evolution as a human species where we, we have choices. We can, you know, and we, we can go down the destructive route or we can come together and, and survive. And, you know, it's not inevitable we're going to make the right choice all the time. Yeah. I see that uh, everything that you say uh, are things that uh, I've been thinking about. I have a friend who's working on kind of thinking through the pandemic in light of what she's referring to as the dark goddess, uh, that sort of yes. death yes. and rebirth aspect of the goddess. Um, and I've observed that, you know, there's this, it's bringing to the surface, these tensions between the interconnectedness of everyone, because if nothing else, that's what the virus demonstrated to us was how interconnected we all are. But then there's this tension, especially, well, I know it's worldwide uh, with the individual, um, you know, people who are like, no, it's my rights that are what's most important. And, you know, there's that tension that has to be addressed uh, and balanced. And I, I definitely see how this is consistent with psychedelic uh, experiences uh, with, you know, the idea of death and rebirth and interconnection and, you know, speaking to the spiritual aspect that it is participatory and um, uh, integral to our being. Um, so I think it's a great analogy to make. One uh, question I wanted to ask you, kind of going back to something you were speaking of, is the training uh, for therapists. And then I want to follow that up with a question about the uh, patients themselves, how people can, uh, or how people are chosen for this therapy, um, things like that. But let's start with the training for the therapists, uh, because uh, it requires a specialized training, I think. Uh, I know one person um, in, uh, in one of the articles, let me see if I can find her name here, uh, Renee Harvey, uh, uh, said that uh, or suggested that it be a kind of apprenticeship. What's your vision for uh, training for therapists um, in working with psychedelics? Well, I, I can tell you a little bit about the training that Maria and I are starting um, at the Institute of Psychedelic Therapy next, next year. And it is a two-year training because we don't think we can do anything. We don't think we can take people through the necessary journey in anything less than, than, than that time. We are training people who have already done a previous, a previous clinical training of any type. So some of them are therapists, some of them are doctors, nurses, 
etc. But we think it's really important that people have got some knowledge of a therapeutic framework and they, they know something about working with people in, in a clinical situation. Um, we think that people need to know uh, the, 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 the basics at least of, 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 of psychotherapy, that kind of that transference and counter-transference about the relational aspects of this work. We, we call our approach depth relational process. And we think all those three words are so important because um, obviously depth speaks to the depth of experience with psych the psychedelic approach that you don't get with, with anything else. Um, relational because it occurs in the context of a, of a relationship, um, you know, with your therapist, with your sitter, with the group of train, you know, the, the group that you're training with. And it's so important to emphasize that relational approach because it's so different to what's often called the magic bullet approach that, you know, you just take the drug and it's a biological effect and whiz bang, that's it. We, we don't buy that. We really don't buy that. And then the third term is process in that it's a process, you know, and you need, you, you need to keep working and it takes time. And you, you have to find a way of, of, go, of giving people the necessary experience in expanded states, which is obviously problematic in the legal framework. So, so we, we use a technique called, called holotropic breathwork, which is the technique that Stan Groff used for many years after his work with psychedelics became um, impossible. I, I've trained in that method, so that was my training. I trained in this over five, five years or so, and I've been working with that method for for, for, for about, about 20 years now. So, so that, and that, that's a really great way of working with people. You do holotropic breath work, in, in, you do holotropic breath work in, 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 in groups, and the groups are divided into pairs, and you have the person who's doing the breath work, which is a three-hour kind of non-drug psychedelic session, and they have a sitter alongside them. And then the next day they, they swap, so the sitter becomes a breather, etc. So it's a wonderful way of somebody having an expanded state experience and also having experience of supporting somebody else in an expanded state. So we're doing quite a lot of that. Um, and also, you know, you can work with, with psilocybin truffles from the Netherlands, which are classed as food in the Netherlands. Uh, so there's quite an industry in the Netherlands of, you know, very well thought out, well held psychedelic retreats, you know, where, where, where a lot of people who work in mental health, a lot of people who work in, 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 in medicine are, are getting such valuable experience in, in terms of, of, of working with these medicines. So what we're putting together is, um, a two-year shared journey of 20 people in our case, where we're working with 20 people because we think that's the maximum people that we can that we can really hold in mind. And of course, there's going to be a theoretical component, um, but the most important thing is going to be the experiential work. Just going to be the group work. There's going to be a whole load of other techniques like family constellations, um, social dreaming, uh, ways of working, engaging with the deep psyche accessing the more transpersonal aspects of the psyche, you know, holotropic breathwork retreats and working with psilocybin in the Netherlands. We think in future, um, to fully accredit uh, psychedelic psychotherapists, there will also need to be an element of supervised practice. So, you know, in the future, we'll be hoping that our trainees will get placements at the clinical research units um, and we'll, we'll be supervised in their work. And you know, that, that's, how, that's how all psychotherapy trainings um, work really. You have your own therapy and then you, um, you become an apprentice therapist 
uh, with with supervision. I'm, you know, I would imagine psychedelic therapy will 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 have a similar sort of model. Will this be the first training program in the UK that you're setting up? Uh, I believe it will. Yes, yes. Because uh, I know there are few and far between here in the states. I know that my alma mater, the uh, California Institute of Integral Studies, uh, has one, and I think maybe John Hopkins, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, so yeah, they're very few and far between. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say before we talk about the patients is I think it would be helpful for people to understand that there are, or at least one method, the holotropic breath work, that is not connected to any kind of substance that they can have this sort of therapeutic psychedelic experience without taking anything into their bodies. I mean, it's a mystery to me why holotropic breathwork has been so below the radar for, you know, the last sort of 50 years really since, uh, since it was developed by Stan and Christina Groff. And I, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one is because it just seems really weird. You know, you lie down in the mat and you hyperventilate to the sound of loud music. Mm. And, you know, that, that's, that's going to sound too too far out for most people. I mean, it did for me to start with. And the second thing is, is um, it was never researched. So there's no, you know, there's no body of research that says this has got clinical usefulness. And I suppose it probably never will be researched now because, you know, the, the research energy and research money has, has gone into psychedelic medicines. Mm. I, I think holotropic breathwork is, is really great. It, it, um, you, you can take, if, if you're doing holotropic breathwork, it's different to a drug in that you can take it at your own pace. Mm. So you can take your foot off the gas. You know, if you think you're going too far, you can back off a little bit. You can take it at your own pace. And... Mm. You know, I, I, it's quite remarkable the depth of experiences that people can have. I mean, I think people can go further very often than they do on, on psychedelic drugs. Interesting. And the process that you were describing, I think, isn't most of that based off of Groff's work? The, the holotropic breath work. Well, no, no, the, the yeah, that that most certainly. But uh, sorry, I kind of jumped. Uh, uh, previously, when we were talking about the like the set and setting, the uh, initiatory experience, and then the integration, isn't uh, that based off of the work of Groff as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that was all Groff's work. I, I, you know, I, I think it was, it was emergent from a, a number okay. of people work in this field. So people gradually moved towards the, the internal journey uh, model, um, you know, with a blindfold and then supported by music. Um, so when people first started working with LSD, they, they, they used it more like a therapy session. Okay. So, you know, sitting in a chair and some conversation mm, and they right. realized that as a model, it wasn't really going to work. Okay. All right. So what about the patients? I remember, and forgive me, I don't remember uh, who wrote this in the book, uh, but they made the comment in terms of uh, addictions that patients who were suffering from addictions, they tended to find psychedelic therapy as sort of the last chance that they had. How do others come to this? And how do you identify patients that psychedelic therapy may be helpful and weed out those that uh, it may not work for, because I imagine this isn't for everyone. That's a really good question and a really important question. And 
just to give a bit of a framework, I mean, the uh, work done by Imperial College working with psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for the treatments of depression, they selected 60 people out of 1,000. So out of about 1,000 people that applied, 6% were found to be suitable. So, uh, you know, I think that's very interesting because it means that probably only a small minority of, of, of the general public are going to be drawn to and are going to be found suitable for this sort of work. Uh, so we mustn't get ahead of ourselves in imagining that it's okay for everybody. I think the sort of people that are going to be drawn to it are the sort of people that would be psychotherapy seeking. Mm. So those people who are interested in their internal processes, who are prepared to tolerate some pain in the pursuance of you know, of healing and, and, and growth. And there are some additional things to think about with psychedelic work in that probably people who've got a history of paranoid reactions or family history of psychosis are probably going to be particularly vulnerable. So you certainly all clinical research studies would, would exclude people with that history. You also want to be really careful about people with a history of impulsivity. So a lot of people in clinical practice and psychiatry have got real problems with impulsivity. You know, if they feel something intense, they will often do something quite intense. So you really need to be, you know, you really need to be uh, sure that people can take care of themselves consistently and have got a supportive framework around them. Because in psychedelic psychotherapy, sometimes you're going to come out of a session and that deep wound that you have accessed is still going to be exposed in some way. You know, the work is not going to be complete in the course of a session. And that happens not commonly, but not infrequently. So you need to have ways of working with those people. You know, you need to make sure that they're, you know, they're safe, there's, you know, there's a supportive framework. Maybe they need to go into hospital if necessary to keep them safe. Um, and then you need to find a way of, of, of going back into an expanded state with them if that is acceptable to them, you know, to do some more work with them to more fully resolve that process. You know, and, and that's going to be really difficult because there are going to be people in the future who will say, well, I had a psychedelic session and that really made me worse. And it did make them worse, but that's, that's part of the work. It depends on your perspective. One perspective would be that the psychedelic session was really bad for them and it's put them in a, you know, in a dangerous state. The other perspective would be that, you know, that this, the psychedelic session has put them exactly at their core issue and they're right where they need to be if, if, they, if they're going to, you know, if they're going to get anywhere. But it's really difficult to work with. So there's a real question of opening up these wounds and what resources do we have? What resources do people have? What capacities uh, do people have to you know, to make informed decisions about the sort of work that they can, that they might be asked to do. Mm -hmm. uh, what about people who may not necessarily think that they have a psychological issue that they need to work through, yeah. but would like to just experience, uh, have a psychedelic experience, maybe for spiritual purposes or just out of curiosity? I, I, I know that the need for a sitter is really important. Do you think that there could be something where there are, uh, you know, trained sitters, for example, uh, that can help people uh, in that sort of situation? I, I, I absolutely think that. And I, I think that is maybe where, 
you know, a lot of the power of this work is going to lie in the future. You know, the research work is about people with clinical conditions at the moment, but as, as you say, uh, probably the majority of people are going to be drawn to this work, uh, you know, doing it for reasons of, of, of personal growth, of spiritual development. And, you know, so, so many of us, maybe all of us, even though some of us might not know it, are inherently spirituality seeking. Mm. You know, where we're looking for humanist experience, we're looking to connect, we're looking to connect with a big picture in a, you know, in a, in a, in a meaningful way. And, you know, I guess there's a question as to how best to do that and what sort of communities are going to arise to support this work in a, you know, in a, in, in a, in a sober, in a sober sort of way. Um, you know, we have, we have festivals. I mean, that's kind of what festivals do, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. This leads me, I, I know that we're uh, running out of time here, um, but when you mentioned the festivals, uh, you know, there's certainly people are experiencing these things, you know, outside of a therapeutic context. And I, I think that it's really important that the various festivals and things like Burning Man, where they have trained, you know, people who are trained to help people who may be having a challenging experience. But the question that I wanted to ask is, we're seeing in the United States, at least, this move towards decriminalization. I think Oregon decriminalized uh, maybe all psychedelics. I'm not sure. We've seen this in California and Oakland. Uh, I think there's a movement uh, in this entire state of California Uh, It's actually gone through all the legal, it's at the final stage to decriminalize things. And so that's going to open it up. And I think it's important for therapy, but it's also going to open it up to the larger population. And one of the issues that I see, and this is something that kind of goes back to the history of where we were and what got us to the prohibition were sort of uh, evangelists like Timothy Leary uh, opening it up to everybody. And I'm curious, do you think that we can avoid another Tim Leary? Well, I I think we, I'm not sure. I think we kind of have so far. I think everyone who works in this field at the moment is aware aware of the Timothy Leary story. And and, and people are very nervous of that happening again. I think these days we have so much more awareness of responsible work and there are many trained integration therapists who can work with people who've had difficult experiences, maybe in a recreational you know, festival setting, um, who, who, who are looking for some help. And there's a lot of you know, well-trained therapists that, that, can, that can help them. There, there will be some casualties, um, sadly. So there's a chapter in the book written by, by Nia Tadmore, who, you know, who, ha- who has got a team of therapists who work in festivals and they do wonderful work keeping people safe. And it seems that people have these kind of initiatory experience in festivals that then kind of, so, you know, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure you, you and many people know this, that then so a seed that turns into, you know, subsequent very, you know, serious psycho-spiritual development. You know, and I guess we all have our, you know, our adolescence, uh, our adolescent car crashes where we're mm. all a bit reckless. We all do things that we wouldn't do as our older selves. We mostly survive and get through it. We mostly have good people around us who can take care of us. It, it's, a, it's, it's a little scary to think about it. 
I, I guess I would rather my kids um, took psilocybin um, in a safe setting rather than got in the car with a drunk driver, you know, or tried to get home from central London in a state of, you know, in a state of drunkenness, which so many people do, you know. For sure. Um, uh, just two final questions, I think, uh, if you don't mind. One was I wanted to ask you about psychedelics outside of the therapeutic setting. Uh, one, I'm thinking in terms of uh, more of a spiritual kind of setting, but I was also very intrigued by an article in the book, uh, Psychedelic Peace Building by, uh, is it Lior Roseman? Yes. who described uh, Israelis and Palestinians drinking ayahuasca together. And, you know, that reminded me of some research I did many, many years ago on the situation in Kashmir, where there was a organization that was attempting to find common ground in the mystical tradition. So it was looking at the Sufi mysticism and Kashmiri Shaivism. You know, and so finding peace and shared spiritual experiences seems like a really smart move. Um, so that was what led me to want to ask you, you know, what other ways do you see psychedelics making positive contributions to the world outside of the therapist's office? Well, it's a great question. And I guess we will just have to wait, wait and see. But the, the, the chapter you described is a really, is a really wonderful chapter. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, how, 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 do you how do you stop people hating each other? And of course that, you know, that, that's, that's, the holy, that's the holy grail, isn't it? You know, the, um, the, the layers of hatred that are often so irrational that go back for so, so, many, so, so many generations. One of the gifts of psychedelics is that you do not want to kill people. Um, you know, it does not make you, you know, unless you have a paranoid reaction, it does not make people... Uh, feel aggressive and want to dominate people or subjugate people or hurt people or injure people or do bad things to people. You know, it's quite extraordinary that that is one of the, I mean, that, that was the reason why LSD got outlawed by the Nixon administration, because it made people not want to go and fight in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, so, that, so that's the bottom line. The tendency is, is for compassion, for connectiveness, to see us all as, you know, to see us all as one. As, as one people, as one tribe. You know, if you hurt somebody, you're killing an aspect, you know, you're hurting an aspect of yourself. Yeah. And that's, a, I think, a good place to start wrapping this up. So let me ask you what you have coming up and where uh, can people find out more about you and your work? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, the Institute of Psychedelic Therapy is the organization that Maria Papaspiru and myself have, have co-founded, and that's that's kind of our heart's work at the moment. We have, you know, it's a professional development organization for therapists who are interested, as interested in this work. We have about 100 members at the moment, so we're starting a train, training course, and you know, we have a number of events, and, you know, we feel very strongly that we want to develop this work in a, you know, in a careful, sober, grounded, relational sort of way. So that, that's, that's, what, that's what we're aiming to do. Okay, wonderful. Um, I, I will, um, if it's okay, I'll put a link for that in the show notes and uh, okay. on YouTube. And I'll also provide a link for uh, the new book, uh, Psychedelics and Psychotherapy. Thank you, Matt. 
of course. Well, um, uh, Tim, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated uh, you taking the time out of your day. Um, I know it's late where you are, and I uh, am very grateful for this conversation. So thank you. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Nick, and I've, I've, enjoyed, I've enjoyed the conversation. So right. thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 22 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a minute to spare, consider posting a short but positive review. And please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been releasing episodes weekly and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, uh, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. But that extra content takes a lot of time and work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.